Are you passionate about creating a physical product, something you can touch, feel, or taste, and then get paid for it by those that love what you've created? Well, the Product Launch Rebel Podcast is the one for you, where you get insider tips on how to spot an opportunity, manufacture your product, get financing, and achieve the independence you've always dreamed about. It's time to crank it up with your host, product developer, investor, and founder of VentureSuperfly.com, John Benzik. Greetings, Product Launch Rebels, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. I am your host, John Benzik, the founder of VentureSuperfly.com, the website that helps you double your entrepreneurial courage, even if you don't know what you're doing. Today, I'm interviewing Tim Porth. Tim is the co-founder of Octane Fitness, which is a fitness machine manufacturer that specializes in elliptical trainers. Tim and his co-founder, Dennis Lee, started Octane Fitness in 2001 and went on to revolutionize the elliptical category several times, winning tons of awards, nearly 100 Best Buy awards. This is my first interview that features the launch and growth of a fitness equipment company, so I'm really excited about learning some new things. It's going to be great. It's a true success story. Tim, thanks for taking the time. I'm excited that you're here, and welcome to the Product Launch Rebel podcast. Thanks for having me on, John. Absolutely. It's going to be great. So, Tim, within this podcast, there are three segments. The first is called Give Me the Basics, which helps set the context about your current company for our listeners. We'll talk about how you came up with the idea, who you sell to, the number and types of products, number of employees, revenues, things like that. And the second part is what I call Tell Me How, where we'll get to the heart of the matter on issues that aspiring entrepreneurs want to know now to help them move forward. We'll talk more about how you launched your business and some key functions of your business. And the final part is the let's get personal component where we get into some of the more personal topics about what it's like to start a business. Tim, it's time for some questions. What do you think? Should we do it? Sounds like a plan. Great. Yeah, let's go. (laughs) Give me the basics. Tim, I've been excited about this interview for quite some time. And the reason is because launching a fitness equipment brand seems like a colossal effort to me. (laughs) You're not just creating a website or a belt buckle. Manufacturing an elliptical machine with all the unique parts, the assembly process, the metal and plastic molding, the sourcing of parts, the hardware, the software, all of that stuff suggest some major activities in manufacturing, a lot of financial outlays, operations and inventory complexities, all of that. And given that, how did you get to the point that you would even consider launching something like this? Tell us the backstory of how you saw this as a business opportunity. That's a great question because um, when I look at other businesses, I see complexity and I, I think of the fitness industry as being pretty simple. Um, I mean, there are a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of uh, nuances with customers and pot products and patents and everything. But, you know, I look at somebody that builds a big house or a big building and I think that's a huge, huge project. So I don't know how they do it, but um, 
I'd been I'd spent a bunch of time before we launched Octane in the fitness industry, so I'd worked for a couple different equipment manufacturers. So I was familiar with it. It was, you know, it was my day job. So I really honestly didn't think it was anything out of the realm because I had been in the business. We knew customers, uh, knew how to design stuff. The challenge was obviously creating a brand and creating a following and and the corporate structure. But the the actual design inventory production stuff was something we were relatively familiar with. So we had an advantage starting out. Yeah. Who do you sell to? So we have we're a global company. So we sell across the globe. Um, we have two markets in the in the United States and Canada, and that's really we sell to uh, specialty fitness dealers. So that's a high end equipment fitness equipment specialty store, and then we also sell to health clubs. Uh, the way it gets to the health clubs is we sell through other dealers that sell to uh, vertical markets. So if you think about fire stations, apartment complexes, high schools, uh, some clubs, some smaller clubs, we sell that direction. And then we also have employees that do national accounts. So bigger health clubs like Lifetime Fitness, Anytime Fitness, Snap, uh, 24-hour, tons, all of those clubs, YMCAs, we sell those direct. And then when we look at international, we sell through distributors. We do a little bit of direct selling internationally, but most of it goes through distributors that will then sell to retailers and then also direct to health clubs and vertical markets. And just for our listeners to hear too, I thought, thought it's pretty cool that you guys sell to the NFL, NBA, the NHL teams. Yeah, yeah, that's kind of a fun one. Uh, the volume isn't quite as high, but it sure makes it fun. We've, we wound up having a lot of professional athletes uh, and teams use our products. They, some go into the stores. Somehow, sometimes trainers contact us. Uh, we actually got backstage at a Bruce Springsteen concert. Bruce used <laughs> bought one of our machines a few years ago and uh, absolutely loves it. So that was kind of cool. Yeah, that is cool. What types of ellipticals do you offer, and how many products do you offer? Yes. So we offer. We started out with a traditional standing elliptical. So. That's the kind of what everybody's used to in the health clubs. It came out in 1995, uh, was the first one. But since then, we've developed three other categories. So we have four different categories of equipment. So we have the standing elliptical. We have a seated elliptical, which we call the X-Ride. So if you kind of think of taking elliptical motion technology with a recumbent bike, uh, it's a great workout. We call it the best workout you can get sitting down. A couple years ago, uh, 2012, we introduced the Lateral X, which takes the elliptical concept but moves it in a three-dimensional format so you can go out kind of like a skating motion. So it's great on the hips, knees, and joints. Uh, and then the fourth category is a newer product that we introduced just two years ago, a uh, year and a half ago, actually. That's called the Zero Runner, and that takes the best of running outside or a treadmill combined with an elliptical trainer. So you can get the real motion. You can simulate exactly what you do outside, but you never hit the ground. So it saves your joints and, and uh, allows people to run and be active a lot longer than previously. Such cool products, the lateral motion, the zero impact running. It's just amazing. I encourage people to check out your website uh, at octanefitness.com. How many employees do you have now? So we had we finished 2015 with I believe 88 employees. Uh, 
about 60 of those are here at our corporate headquarters. And then some of the other ones, we have salespeople uh, that are spread across the globe and a few service and uh, employees in an office in Rotterdam. But uh, now we're part of a bigger corporation. We're part of the Nautilus Incorporated. So the total number for Nautilus is somewhere around 400 people. Mm -hmm. And when you started the company in those early days, maybe that first six months, how many employees did you have then? Yeah, (laughs) back in, uh, well, we started in 2001 and there were just two of us that started it. And then we hired an engineer uh, pretty quickly. So there were three of us. And then as we started producing the product, we were up to about six employees. And then in uh, 2015, 20, no, 2005, sorry about that. In 2005, we had uh, nine employees. It's fun to just get a basis and a comparison there to help signal uh, the structure of your company back in the early days. What are your current total revenues? So Octane Fitness as a brand is somewhere in the, the mid $60 million range. Uh, you know, Nautilus as a company is uh, quite a bit bigger than that, about $400 million. Yeah. And congratulations on selling to Nautilus. What does that feel like when that was happening? During that process, what did that feel like? Yeah, well, the process is a long process. It's pretty grueling. Uh, the feeling is fantastic. We wound, we wound up selecting a great partner or we kind of selected each other. Uh, but we went through kind of a mini process to sell the company. We had some interest from a few different industry uh, companies. And we wound up talking to four different companies. And Nautilus turned out to be a great option for uh, us personally, for Dennis and myself, but then also for our employees because we've been able to uh, keep our facility here in the Twin Cities, and uh, people are keeping their jobs. And there's a lot of uh, there's a lot of good work going forward. And I think there's there's very limited overlap between the companies, so it really makes a stronger corporation where you know one and one can equal three. Sure. And how did you come up with the name? Tell us that story. For Octane Fitness. Yes. Oh, yeah, boy. You know, we kind of started and uh, we wanted something that was really kind of inspirational. We wanted something that uh, portrayed energy and movement and life. And when you go out and you look, boy, it's tough to find names these days, especially when you're looking for a URL and something that you can identify with. So we were originally looking at the O for the elliptical shape. And we really liked the word oxygen. And we thought we might be able to develop something around that. But uh, Oprah Winfrey had that kind of tied up, so we figured let's not go up against her. So we were just kind of playing around and stumbled across, I think it was really fuel and energy and just doing the whole thesaurus search and came across Octane. And we wound up, it's it's funny, we wound up doing a survey. We had like eight names and nobody liked anything in particular. It wasn't like Octane Fitness jumped off the board. But I kind of knew in my heart that that name was the right name. I equate it to when you name your child. Uh, I, I, after having our first kid, I won't, I wouldn't tell anybody what our other kids' names were going to be because you get weird reactions when you tell somebody when it's not actually their name. Right, Tim. Let's step back a little bit. Most entrepreneurs go into a business with a set of assumptions, and many of those assumptions prove to be different from what they originally expected which makes them scramble to make changes in order to survive. Regarding Octane Fitness's uniqueness, did your original assumption about the product's uniqueness prove motivating 
to your audience or did you discover a different selling proposition after being in business for a while? You know, the re we were very fortunate. Uh, when we introduced our machines, there was an opening in the market at like $2,000, around that price point. And we thought that competitors would actually come in a lot faster to that price point. And people were really kind of open. Competitors didn't identify us as a threat. We really kind of, we flew under the radar for a while, as long as we could, uh, so that before they knew it, we, we had a stabilized base. And on the distribution side, we started out with just retail. And those retailers really, uh, we had a good relationship with them in the past, so they really appreciated our product and how, how we set up our company and how we listened to them. So uh, it really came together pretty quickly. And I, there wasn't, the thing that surprised me the most was we didn't have more competition sooner. Tim, what's your role there now? I handle product development and marketing. So I manage a group of engineers, both on the mechanical electrical side. We have product managers, and then we have a marketing team in-house. So I'm in charge of really kind of everything from the initial vision of what products we're going to develop through the development, through the marketing, positioning, and executing that marketing. It sounds like really a great role. I love the product development and marketing side. Yeah, yeah. It, it's, I'm a kid in a candy shop. It's exactly what I love to do. That's for sure. Tell me how. So, Tim, here we are in the Tell Me How segment of the podcast, where we aim to get to the heart of the matter regarding key issues for aspiring entrepreneurs. Tim, let's talk about raising capital. Did you raise capital for Octane Fitness? Yes, we did. Uh, we kind of worked nights and weekends in the beginning, and we, we went as conservatively as we could on the expense side. We built some prototypes and did a bunch of design work. Uh, but then once we started the company when it was time to really raise money we decided to leave uh and and talk to investors and we had already talked to some investors that were interested but they weren't willing to commit because we hadn't left our current jobs so then the the day i went to go resign was september 11 2001 hmm. which yeah was obviously a terrible day yes um, so I, I put that plan on pause i i resigned the next day uh, about a week later, we went out to the investors, and what I really didn't anticipate was how the market was going to crash. And I remember one of the investors saying, so you want me to invest in this risky business opportunity when my portfolio is currently at 50% of what it was? Right. So that was a big challenge for us, but I think inside of that was a real lesson for us on how to be frugal and how to really bootstrap it as much as we could. We wound up raising about a million and a half dollars. Uh, it took about a year for us to raise that money. Dennis and I put in some initial capital to get things started. We made some prototypes, took some trips to Asia for manufacturing. We started the whole process. Uh, we had a, round, uh, a first round that we brought in some industry veterans, which really helped to kind of solidify. We were able to spend that money. I think we brought in $400,000 for that. So that got us going, and then we raised the remaining money, about another million dollars from really friends and family uh, was the primary source of that capital. Were you working with Dennis uh, in the same company originally? We, yeah, we were. We worked together. Uh, for We were at the same company for about three years. We worked closer for about a year and a half, but 
kind of the funny thing is it's not like we were planning for years on doing something. Uh, there was some change within our company. The, the president changed. They changed the structure a little bit. Uh, I actually got promoted, but the, the job wasn't uh, exactly what I was looking for. So we decided as things changed in our current job that let's go try to do something on our own. How challenging was it when you were trying to raise capital? You said originally after September 11th that it was obviously challenging. But once you did you create a business plan? Did you have a slide deck that you presented? Did you present the opportunity in a certain way? How formal was that? Yeah, we you know, we've been really diligent planners from day one and even in our previous life, you know, understanding the market, understanding the opportunity. Uh, product costs. We went through some some really rigorous planning, and I think one of our benefits is we would pull out that business plan and measure against it each year and update it. So that process, I think that helped uh, explain and tell the business story. But I remember we had investors that said, you know, I'm really investing in you two guys. You know, I they they don't understand that business plan, the market, what we're looking at. You know, it's kind of hard to verify what we're saying in those things. So uh, the plan was really good for us. I think it showed the potential investors that we were organized and, and really focused on what we were going to do. But at the end of the day, I think those investors are really believing in the individuals that are going to run the company and and put their faith in those people. Back in those early, early days when you were considering and in the process of planning the business how confident were you in working with Dennis on the idea? How did that emerge? Tell us a little bit about your confidence level back then. Yeah, I, Dennis approached me really with the idea. I mean, he's really the one that said, hey, what about, have you ever thought of starting a business? And I've always been an entrepreneur at heart. I worked in some small businesses and I've always thought about doing something like that. But I honestly hadn't thought about making our own fitness equipment, designing and selling and, and doing all of that. But once we started talking about it, we said, you know, boy, there is a, there's a market opening and we've been doing it. We know how to do it. Why not do it on our own? Um, in, in working with Dennis, he's a great individual. He's been in the industry for years, a uh, few years longer than I had and has a great reputation. And the, one of the real strong points between our relationship is we really don't overlap. He's a sales service operations and became finance guy. So he really understands that portion. And, and I sit on that product development marketing side. So we really don't overlap. We complement each other really well. And it's been a fantastic, uh, ideal relationship for the last 16 years. In the experience of raising capital, do you have any walk away sort of key pieces of advice? Yeah, boy, that's a great question. Uh, you know, when you're raising capital, you really just got to stay at it and you got to get introduced to more and more people. It's pretty amazing how many, once you meet somebody, what that relationship is like to the person they know that they know that they know. And, and there really is a big community of people that are interested in investing in startups. So once you break in, uh, we would have a lot of people that would say, hey, I've got this buddy who might be interested. I'm going to bring him into the presentation to listen. And whether that person was a sounding board or eventually became a an investor, we uh, we saw both. So what I would say is 
tap into that community and just ask for introductions. And the more people you start to get to know, the more people that come out of the woodwork and are, are uh, kind of regulars in this that side of the business. Let's talk about finding a manufacturer. How did you go about finding a manufacturer for the Octane Fitness Equipment? Yeah, there's there's really three places that the majority of fitness equipment is manufactured. There's some in the United States, um, a lot in Taiwan, and a lot in China. And we had worked at a company that at companies that had done both domestic U.S. manufacturing and Asian manufacturing. Um, Asia has a lot of the supplies and the components. I think a lot of that's been driven by the bicycle industry being there. It went from bicycles to exercise bikes into treadmills, ellipticals, and everything else. So Dennis nor I had been to Asia before for manufacturing for fitness equipment, but I did have some relationships. I knew some agents and, and a lot of people had had. So uh, we got on an airplane, went over, got introduced to a bunch of factories in Taiwan. Uh, we went to Taiwan just because it's a little easier to do business with. Uh, the quality is typically a little better. You can get great quality out of all countries. You can get terrible quality out of all countries. But we picked Taiwan because it was a little easier to get started. And that's where premium fitness equipment was coming from. Sure. Thinking back to those early days of manufacturing, can you recall any issues or problems? <laughs> How long does this podcast go? Right. <laughs> yeah, we had... We reworked, I think it's the first 40 containers of machines that came in. And we get about 60 machines on a container. So we had to open the box and fix every unit for those first 40 containers. What was the problem? It's a long list. Really? It really was. Yep. Yeah. You know, we had we had our initial design. Um, we, we had issues getting the manufacturer to build stuff to print. And if we weren't there, stuff would get shipped. Uh, kind of a classic story that you'd read, read in any any business case going <laughs> going over there for your first product. But we persevered. I mean, we continued to push the envelope, put um, procedures in place, and we wound up moving. And we've since changed our manufacturing philosophy a little bit, where when we first went to Taiwan, we had one manufacturer do everything. So they tooled up the machines. They supplied the electronics, they had the relationship with all of the key components, where now we really control anything that's long lead or expensive. Uh, so if there's something like a, a brake or electronics or plastic tooling, uh, we own that tooling outright so that if we need to, we can, we can move it to another facility. That gives us more flexibility and a little bit of leverage. Right. I, that's a very good point, insightful point about owning the tooling, because I think a lot of people that go into a manufacturing contractor relationship, they I think they can overlook that, don't you? Oh, absolutely. You, you, and we could kind of take the easiest route, you know, just because it was easier to go to one company, they could handle it all. But boy, right, right before we went to Pilot, which is our first production run, our uh, price went up about 25% and there was nothing we could do. In that first shipment, those 20 or 40 containers, whatever you were describing there, and some of the pricing issues and the quality issues, at that time on a scale of one to 10, 10 being really bad, uh, zero, one being not, not too bad, how dire of a situation was that to the, to the survival of the company at the time? 
it was major. <laughs> it was major. You know, we weren't selling product. We were burning money. And we had to, we did not have it in our cost plan uh, to sit there and rework all of these products in the warehouse. So uh, we were delayed in bringing revenue in, but we knew the most important thing was to stand behind the product, stand behind the dealer, the the retail store to make sure they had confidence. And, you know, they'll give you, if everybody knows that you can have problems in manufacturing, it, it's how you address it once you do. Uh, our problems are significantly less because we're a much more much larger and more organized company now but you know coming out of the gate we had some we had some quality issues but we weren't afraid to go to the retail store go to their warehouse and rework stuff if we discovered something later or um, even even fixing it here so in all your experience what sort of key advice do you have for people in finding the right manufacturing partner boy you have to do due diligence on on their background and and companies that have worked with them in the past, and not just the list of companies they give you a reference on. You really need to dig a lot deeper than that. And then we have a philosophy where we want to be one of the majors within that company. So we would much rather go to a smaller manufacturer and be number one or number two than go to a big manufacturer and be number 10 on the list. Because when when we started reality was we were a small company this was a pretty big manufacturer that was making a lot of a lot of fitness equipment and other power tools and things and we just didn't really matter right let's shift gears a little bit and talk about selling the product to retailers which i think is what you did in the early days now you uh sell to other businesses as well but early on how did you do that yeah we had we had relationships within that business so we knew who the premium retailers were in each market. And as I said before, there was a market opening. So there was there were price points at like $1,200 and then $3,000, but there was nothing in between. And there was a significant difference. So our first selling proposition to the dealer and to the end customer was, you can get this premium product, something that's just like this $3,000 product for five to $700 less. And then there was a nice story of these guys came from the fitness industry, so we had some credibility. And when you go into a specialty store, those those salespeople can really take you, take that customer to whatever product they want. So as long as they believe in the product and the company that's supporting it, you might not have heard of, you probably didn't hear of Octane Fitness, but if you have that qualified salesperson telling you it's a great value, it's going to fit your needs, it's what you're looking for, uh, that's really what helped us get there. Before you even started manufacturing, did you have agreements in place, either formal purchase orders or informal agreements in place with retailers to give you some confidence of manufacturing that first run? Yeah, we, we really didn't have agreements and we still, we, we set up uh, like a, a business plan each year with our retailers, but we showed them product early on, and we actually called them and said, hey, if we were going to do this, if we were going to go off and make our own machine, would you be interested? And we got a lot of yes from the customers. They said, yeah, we would definitely be interested in seeing what you had. And we brought them in during the development process, which really was critical. From the very early, roughest prototypes, we would fly dealers in from across the country. And, uh, you know, we could see it in their eyes and, and had that relationship with them that we knew that we'd go forward. We didn't. We didn't try to 
force them into any kind of purchase orders or anything like that. We said, hey, if we develop the right product, will you buy it? And, and then it was on us to go develop the right product. The sales reps that you work with, either domestically or internationally, are they independent parties or are they salaried people for, that are employees of the company? Yeah, they're employees. Uh, most of them are based with commission for our sales team. And we have account managers that deal with retailers and the, the commercial dealers. And then we have direct salespeople for national account type situations. And when you work with distributors going to some of the other segments or channels, how do you approach the distributors? Are there a lot of them that you sort of vet or are there just a few that you definitely would go to no matter what? Yeah, there's just a few in this industry. It's a pretty tight knit industry. Uh, there's, you know, you know who the A, B and C players are and you always want to be with an A or B player depending on who they're with. As far as competition goes, we fit really well with uh, a lot of competitors, some not quite as well. So you might pick somebody that's a B player because they they have the right product mix for you. But it's it's pretty easy to get to figure out who to go with. So, Tim, back in the early days when you were identifying retailers to sell to across the country, were there some key retailers that you wanted to get into right right off the bat? And were you able to get into those retailers? Yeah, there were. There were a few key markets. I remember uh, Minneapolis, the Twin Cities, Denver, and Dallas were three key ones that we got into. They they really didn't have the product offering they needed. They started selling right away. And the best part was those retailers became our best salespeople because they have relationships with the other retailers within the industry. And they would just share their experience. And before we knew it, we had... Uh, pretty much a full lineup across the country of, of retailers selling our product. That's exciting. Did you go to any trade shows in those early days? <laughs> yeah, yeah, we did. Uh, there was a big industry trade show in Denver. We planned to have the product come in. Uh, we had some early production units. We, they got delayed, uh, so we wound up throwing them in the back of a Suburban and driving them out to uh, Denver. And we had a hotel room that we that we uh, used to show the product. So we weren't on the floor. We didn't want the competition to know exactly what we were doing. But fortunate enough that uh, the retailers all came across the street to the hotel room and the rest is history. Yeah. And do you still do trade shows? We do. We do a lot of them. We do probably uh, 50 to, to 60 domestic trade shows, mostly on the health club side. Uh, with the Zero Runner product, we also do a lot of events. So if you think about home shows or expos for marathons, so something like the New York City Marathon, they have an expo where the runners go and pick up their packet. We did uh, 150 expos in 2015 with our retailers' help. So we're at a lot of shows. We're at a lot of events. So since you're in charge of marketing, do you cover a lot of that territory? Do you travel to these shows? Uh, I do some. I do a decent amount of travel. I don't go to all the shows by any means. I go to the major shows. But we have enough employees. We have enough salespeople, distributors that are really helping out with that. We have a couple people on the Zero Runner front that travel exclusively for the Zero Runner to help tell that story and communicate it because it is such a new product. Let's talk about pricing a little bit. How did you go about setting the price for the product back in those early days to make sure that you 
recover the uh, the gross margins and the net margins that you need. Yeah, we we took it from the bottom up and from the top down. So we looked at what our product cost was, and you know it got it got run up right there at the end. So that affected us. But then we knew what the competition was, and we really talked with the retailers and said, okay, what do you think the difference needs to be? How much premium can we get from the guys that are sitting under us in quality and feel? And how much do we need below the guys that are sitting on top of us from a price point? So we kind of worked it both ways, and and it came out to a great situation because the goal of the company is to make money, but we're not greedy. Uh, we want to make, you know, we want to make money, but the retailer's got to make money and the customer's got to get something that's right for their for their uh, pocketbook. Tim, do you have any advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners about how to set the right price? What would you tell them? Yeah, boy, pricing really is a, is a science on its own. Uh, what we really do, the first thing we do is make sure we understand our fully rolled up costs. So everything that goes into it from... The actual product costs coming from Taiwan, what it takes to land it, all the duties that are encompassed, warranties, uh, any kind of royalties or anything we have to pay on the product. So we want to really have what we call, we have our FOB, which is freight on board, and then our TPC is a total product cost that rolls up everything. Then from there, you got to work in the right margin, depending on your sales channel. For us, with the retailer, we have to work in the right margin for the retailer and then from there, it's really a question of what is your price value to the end customer and what's the competition look like? So it's something that we talk to retailers a lot about. We do talk to end customers about it as well. So we really do our homework on pricing. And I think we've done a decent job. Uh, we typically want to start a little higher. And if we see issues, we'll bring it down a little bit. But uh, it, is, it is kind of a science on its own. Tim, let's talk about creating awareness and demand for your product. And especially thinking back in those early days, as you know, most startups have very small marketing budgets. How did you create awareness and demand both at the trade level, the business level, as well as the consumer level in those early days? Yeah, boy, when I think back to the early days, you know, (laughs) there was no social media. So it's absolutely a different day and social media has been one of the best things that's happened for startups even pay-per-click and and uh facebook advertising and all that stuff has really changed the game but when we started we really put our money behind two things so we were in retail stores and the retailers were really driving the traffic we knew that we could not at being a new company drive a lot of traffic into the stores so we supplied those retailers with marketing materials and really a story it all starts with the positioning and the story on the company and you have to make it easy for this qualified salesperson to tell the story we gave them great support material in the store so point of purchase type things you know everything from brochures but stuff that's hanging on the product and we really wanted to make it easy for them to go through and tell what the key features were so that we could get a consistent story presented there's about 400 retailers that we were in so you have a couple people per store so you're training you know in at 800 to a thousand people well it's really hard to do it so how do you get it consistent and have everybody presenting the same way and then from there the thing that we did also was we spent some money on pr to go after the publications and get reviews all the you mentioned best buy awards earlier um 
we're almost at 100 Best Buy Awards, and it's everybody from Consumer Reports to Consumer Digest. Oprah Winfrey, we were one of her favorite things. Um, all kinds of reviews that have really helped us because what we learned is the customer comes into the store. You have a salesperson who wants to sell you something. That's their job. So they would tell you the story about the product, and then they would use this third-party testimonial. They would bring in these reviews and say, hey, you know what? I'm a salesperson. It's my job to sell you something. But here, you can look, and here are all the different articles. Well, LA Times, Consumer Reports, all these different reviews that tell you how good this product is. So that was really our, our initial start at how we would drive sales. And it was really more of a conversion strategy than than pulling people into the store. Mm -hmm. And did you have to, in those early days, go to a lot of stores and do events or activities to help educate the sellers of the product? Or did you do any in-store demos or training? Yeah, lots of it. That's been one of our keys with our sales people, our, really our account managers on that front, is to be in those stores and be in front of the customer. And, and we really... We spend time bringing them in when we develop new products. We want to create a relationship with people. We have some competitions that we do for salespeople. But first and foremost, we want them to know that we're a product, that a company that we're going to stand behind the product and the customer. Because the worst thing is if something goes wrong and somebody returns that product, you're, you're literally taking cash out of that salesperson's pocket because they're losing their commission. So we want to stand behind it. Those people interface with the end customer all the time, so they have a ton of great ideas. So we, we really leverage that relationship to develop the right product for them and tell that story. Yeah, that's fun stuff. I remember doing that in my previous physical product companies. I always enjoyed kind of that interaction at that level. Let's get personal. So, Tim, let's get personal on a few topics. It seems that 99 out of 100 people just talk about starting a business but never start one. And starting a business is very unusual and risky. What motivates a person like you, Tim Porth, to stop just talking about launching a business and actually go out and start a business like Octane Fitness? Are you a creator at heart? Was it your destiny to sort of start a business? I don't know if it was my destiny to start a business, but I've always been a creator. I've always been a designer. I've always wanted to do something more. Uh, when I was young, I started a lawn mowing business. I mean, I was, I don't know why, but I've always been motivated to do things like that. A couple buddies, we, we would, we would really kind of did a big lawn mowing business and kept busy for a couple summers. So I think it's always been in my heart. Uh, I worked for a few small design firms fresh out of college, so I had that understanding, you know, not not going into a big corporation, which is something that we learned. There are people that can handle this risky startup thing and thrive in it, and there's people that really need a big corporate structure around them, and, and they're regimented to that. But I've always been the guy that likes the uh, the fast-moving the fast moving dynamic of a startup or a small company. So yeah, it's, it's always been something in my heart and uh, I'm just glad I did it. And I'm glad that I was approached by Dennis at the time. Our business was changing. And if I wanted to stay in fitness, uh, I probably would have had to move or do something on my own. So it's probably a combination of, of having that gut feel to be an entrepreneur and then kind of being forced into it. Sure. 
And starting a business like yours, Octane Fitness, and being in it for 15 years must have involved some critical and maybe even emotional moments, both positive and negative and dealing with all sorts of people, people within and maybe even outside the business. Can you share maybe your top one, two, or three moments or stories that might uh, have been frustrating, super joyful, disappointing? Yeah. I don't know if I start on the uh, the joyful or the, the frustrating. I'll start on the frustrating so I can I can end on a happier note. Sure. Uh, uh, there was a frivolous lawsuit uh, that came about years ago, and it's actually still ongoing. But uh, we got sued by a competitor on a patent infringement, which uh, was really out of left field. It really didn't apply to our product at all. But through the due diligence process, uh, we learned that it was a frivolous lawsuit by some of the statements and, and we wound up going to all the way to the Supreme court and we're victorious at the Supreme court. So I guess that's, maybe that's a, a bad and a good story altogether. Sure. But that is frustrating going through that. It really is because it's a ton of money. Uh, it's a ton of distraction, which is exactly what some people want to bestow on you. Uh, but in the end we prevailed and, uh, we, with the Supreme Court ruling, we're now um, one of the standards that's used as far as uh, getting your money back from a frivolous lawsuit. Absolutely. Do you think that experience was your number one frustration throughout the business, or are there another one or two? That's probably number one. <laughs> that's a pretty tough one. So that, we, we really have been very fortunate over the years. You know, the 2008 uh, market crash was a real tough one for the company as well. I guess that would be probably my number two where the economy was sliding, as everybody knows, uh, when something that we learned real quick was as people aren't building new homes, putting additions on or refinancing their homes, they're not buying as much fitness equipment. So just like the housing industry, we were tied, uh, were tied to the housing industry. So our market really kind of fell apart there. Being a business owner for the last 15 years, as I'm just thinking out loud, did did your success surprise you? Does it surprise you now? Yeah, I guess I'm always kind of, I live in this business, so it's very incremental. And we set a plan and we execute and we set a plan and we execute. So it's not, I think other people have a perspective of, wow, look what you've done. But to me, it's just this ongoing uh, growth. So I'm not kind of amazed because I don't sit back and look at it. I just kind of keep my head going forward and look what at what's next. Yeah, it's just become your reality. Right. What have been your biggest joys or what have you been most proud of along your journey at Octane Fitness? Yeah, we've had some really good product success. Uh, we've had a lot of people that have used the product. You know, we get, we get testimonials from customers that <laughs> – are real tearjerkers. I mean, things that people have been able to do and the success they've had. Uh, another thing that stands out is within the industry, there used to be a publication that would do an annual survey to the to the dealers, and they would vote on what their best company, the top company was in each category and top company overall. And we won, I think it was six out of seven years, we were voted the best supplier, which was really great because that's, that's customers speaking to our business plan and kind of what we do. And then I remember when one of the people that ran the survey came up to me and said, you know, even 
your competitors talk positively about you guys. And that was one thing that will stick with me for a long time, that we've been able to develop this company and have a really good relationship with our with the competition. Yeah, that's a great story. Tim, many entrepreneurs, even seasoned ones at the pinnacle of their success, experience self-doubt from time to time as they go along their entrepreneurial journey. How much self-doubt have you had, if any, and how have you dealt with it? There's been a little bit. Uh, you know, starting out trying to raise the initial capital was was some self-doubt. Uh, there's some late nights in Taiwan working through product issues, factory issues with a little bit of self-doubt. But, you know, nothing really that large that I've said, boy, we're really in trouble. We really haven't experienced that. So we've been pretty fortunate on that side. We've been able to persevere through through the challenges we've had. Sure. And as you know, starting a business is super difficult. How has starting Octane Fitness changed you as a person, if at all? Boy, you know, it's really given me a great perspective on the American dream and, you know, the fact that you can really do anything. Uh, you just have to, you got to work your butt off at it. Um, we've really put a lot of, we've been good at, we've been fortunate with good planning uh, the market and everything. So it's given me a perspective that if somebody wants it, they really can can go for it. Is there something about Octane Fitness that you'd like to achieve that you have not achieved yet? You know, there we are continuing with this next evolution of zero impact exercise, which is, you know, it originally started out as ellipticals, which grew into low impact, which now is really zero impact. And the market's shifting a little bit with a lot of CrossFit things. Um, this, our company is shifting a little bit with that. So that's a fun venture for me. So I love seeing how, you know, the market changes. And if you're not leading that market change, how do you adapt to it and how do you fit your product to it? And I think that's kind of the next phase of, of where we're going right now. Since you started Octane Fitness, what do you think you've learned most about yourself? Boy, I've learned what I like to do and what I don't like to do. Because when you're put in that situation of, you know, small company and there's no one else to do it, you wind up doing everything. And the things that are on your to-do list that fall to the bottom of the to-do list and stay there for weeks and weeks, um, that means you really don't like doing it or there's a challenge there. So I figured out what I really like to do and what I'm good at. And, and I've come to embrace the things that I'm not as good at or good at all with so then you just really need to support yourself with people that can handle those things and um, don't be in denial you know admit your faults and and then support find support for that who has been most influential to you in your life either professionally or personally mm, boy i don't i don't know if i have one key person you know i've had i've been fortunate to have many people um across my professional career um, influence what I do. Uh, on, the, on the personal side, um, my mom was a great driver on, on hard work ethic and uh, doing what you say, do what you say you're going to do. And uh, my grandfather, I remember when I was looking to go to college, said to me, uh, you, you got to get a job that you really enjoy the category you're in. Actually wanted to be a forest ranger, and he's like, <laughs> "I don't think you want to do that. It's, it's that's going to be a struggle. You might think it's great now, but instead, why don't you go into business 
and work in an industry that you really enjoy. And I took that to heart. Um, initially, I was designing just consumer products and medical products. And, and then I said, I really want to get into a corporation where I can start working in something that I really like, like fitness. And I've been a avid runner and exerciser since like fifth grade. And uh, that makes that means when I come to work and I'm testing product or designing product, I'm really not working. Tim, I have one final question for you. Do you think I missed any question that you feel like you'd like to provide answers to? Or do you have any closing pieces of advice for our aspiring entrepreneur listeners? I would say uh, something that we really focused on as a company was to paint a vision. I mean, there's there's where you are today and then there's where you're going. And we would tell one story to our employees of, you know, here's the long-term vision. We give a little bit of a shorter-term vision to our customers. But we wanted to paint that so that everybody in the company is rowing the boat in the same direction. And it's really it's really worked well. Uh, to make sure that everybody understands what we're doing so we're all on one team. I've been in companies where it's fractured and, you know, you have different departments against different departments and, and that's just wasted energy. So we focused on, hey, this is what, we're, what we want to do. This is where the company's going to go and then empower those people to go that direction. Tim, you've been a terrific guest offering some great stories and advice to our aspiring entrepreneur listeners. Congratulations on your success for your entrepreneurial courage, and for sharing your experiences with us today. Thanks, John. It was great. Well, you've just listened to another episode of Product Launch Rebel featuring John Benzik of Venture Superfly. To download episodes of previous shows or for other entrepreneur-related resources, visit VentureSuperfly.com. Be sure to like Venture Superfly on Facebook, follow us on Twitter, and subscribe to Product Launch Rebel in iTunes. Join us for our next Product Launch Rebel episode, where we'll continue to reveal insider tips on how to launch and grow your physical product-based business.